Turn with me in your Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 20. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts. We are week 37 uh, and in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. And last, last week or week before, um, we, were in, we were closing out Paul's time in Ephesus. You'll remember uh, just to kind of catch you up that we're in our third missionary journey. This is Paul's third missionary journey where he has planted um, churches all throughout uh, Galatia and Macedonia and those places. Shane, you can put that map up for us if you wouldn't mind. That'll be the third missionary journey map. And this is just that area that, you know, the, again, the red line kind of tracks where he's gone. And the home church of Jerusalem is in Syria, which was all the way to the right-hand side, that kind of tan area. And then he travels north through Galatia and into Asia and Macedonia and down to Greece and then back to Jerusalem. That's been his pattern. And this is the third missionary journey. And he, he, he spent three years in Ephesus building up the Ephesian church. So if you missed that, you might want to go back and listen because it just it gives a lot of insight when you read the epistle of, to the Ephesians, having all that information. But tonight, he's leaving Ephesus. So he'd been there for three years, and now he's finally moving on, and that's where we're at, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. The uproar... You'll remember what they were in the amphitheater, and the whole the whole city was in an uproar. And this is after three years of being there, so it, you know, finally came to a head. And this was started by the silversmiths because they were making uh, little idols of the goddess Artemis, and that trade was being destroyed because everybody was leaving false gods and turning to the true God. So they kind of all got together and caused a problem for Paul. And so now he's finally headed out of town. So after encouraging them, verse 1, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. All right, let's put the map back up. And actually, we can, uh, we can zoom in on that one part, Shane, that we had talked about. So in the bottom right-hand corner is where Ephesus is. I wanted to zoom in because it's kind of hard to see all the little cities. But he goes north from there, and that orange area is Macedonia. And you'll remember there we have Philippi, so the Philippian church. We have Thessalonica. We have the Bereans. Um, so Thess I think I said Thessalonica. So we have several cities there that were planted. And we don't, you know, we don't actually know how much time he spent. Sometimes we get this in Scripture. It's just in one verse. But one verse could be a year. And actually, that's what most scholars believe. This, this was probably about one year that he was going through Macedonia visiting these churches. So it says, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he finally arrived at Greece, which is down there in the green section. So coming through Macedonia, he spent time at Philippi, Thessalonica, you know, in those places, Berea. And remember, these are churches that have already been planted, and now he's going back and visiting them. And we're going to kind of find out a little bit more about what was going on as he was doing that. Again, it's all just, you know, one verse. And as with a lot of things in Scripture, when you're studying Scripture, you have to sometimes piece things together from other parts of the Bible. You know, you don't necessarily get it all from this, but sometimes, like, if you go read the letter to the Thessalonians or the letter to the Philippians... 
you may get information about this time that we're not actually getting right here. And that's how scripture works. You know, you sometimes things are pieced together from multiple places. And that's the case here. One of the things we know he was doing on this trip that's not specifically mentioned here is that he was taking up a really big offering. And this is talked about in scripture probably five or six different places that all of these churches that Paul had planted, he is now asking them to collect money for the church back in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is his home church, or well, really he's more in Antioch, but the, the Jerusalem church is, you know, Peter, James, and John. That's the big, you know, the big three, the disciples, the, the strong disciples, you know, the ones that are very influential. They're in Jerusalem. And that was the very first church. It kind of all started there, right? You know, the day of Pentecost happens. Everyone's filled with the Holy Spirit. The church of Jerusalem, what, what is it? 3,000 people saved in a day, you know? And so it's just, that was where everything kind of started. Well, we begin to see, and we don't ever quite get a full explanation of why he's receiving this offering. But in every epistle, almost, he's mentioning it. And he says, you know, when I come... I want you to make sure that you have the offering ready. Like sometimes when we read the offering scripture in church, we'll read out of, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 9, where he talks about he who sows sparingly reaps sparingly, right? You, that's familiar to some of you. Well, that's, that's him taking up this offering. He's telling them, I'm going to be there shortly, and when I get there, I want you to have the collection ready. And just remember, he who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. And so then he encourages them with that. But actually... He, he mentions this over and over again. So just to kind of give you the short version, basically, as he's traveling through this area, he is picking up these offerings that he's been writing to them about. That's happening on this missionary journey. So when you read through the epistles and Paul is addressing a collection or addressing an offering, that is the offering that he's receiving on this missionary journey. Now, of course, that's not even the main point of his journey, but it's just something that's happening on this journey. So each place that he goes, he's collecting and he's carrying it with him. That's going to be, poor, that's going to be very important when we get to the end here in just a moment. So um, he's receiving this collection, and let's see. I want to read 1 Corinthians 16.1 just as an example. We could read several of the epistles where he addresses this offering. But 1 Corinthians 16.1, this is just one uh, uh, section where he mentions it. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, if it seems advisable that I should go also, then they will accompany me. So this is just one reference, but there's several like this in the New Testament. And basically what he's telling them is, he said, hey, the church, all the churches of Galatia, they're doing the same thing. All the churches are doing this. And he said, what I want you to do is on the first day of the week, uh, which is when they would have met for service, he said, I want you to put aside a portion for Jerusalem and so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, I don't want to get there and be like, where's the offering? 
You know, I want you doing this little by little as it goes on so that when I get there, we don't have to make a big deal about this. Because, you know, Christians have always been a little bit touchy about money. That's just a fact. You know, you have people, you start taking up an offering or something, or you start acting like they have a duty to do something. It's like, whoa, you know, you're just in this for the money. What? No, that's, this is important. Jesus talked about this. You know, it, it matters. So what he's really, and Paul's not keeping any of this. You know, Paul is bringing all this to Jerusalem, and we're going to find out in a minute what it's for or what the purpose of it is. So this is one example, but actually this is mentioned here, 1 Corinthians 16.1. It's mentioned 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9. It's mentioned Galatians 2, Romans 15, and other places. That's not all the places, but in every one of those references I just mentioned, he addresses those churches about this offering. Well, it's on this missionary journey that he's coming through, and he's, he's collecting that, and he's picking that up. Now, keep in mind, it's not like they could write him a check, you know, so they have lots of money, you know, maybe it's in chests, maybe they're having to carry this with them as they go along, and they're going to they're gonna just, every city they go to is getting more and more and more, and then they've got to bring it back to Jerusalem. And this is over several Years And as he mentions here in 1 Corinthians 16, sometimes the churches, if they, you know, just as a matter of stewardship or accountability or whatever, they would send somebody from the church with him, along with him, to make sure that the offering got to Jerusalem. So his, his traveling party sort of continues to increase for those churches that wanted to send people along with him to bring this offering. Okay, what was this offering for? Well, just to... Just so we're totally clear, you know, it's not 100% crystal clear what it's for. uh, Because, you know, I have a lot of thoughts when I read this. I mean, a lot of these cities that he's going to, number one, uh, they have their own needs, right? I mean, that's always the case. Like our church, we support churches and missionaries all over the world. We have partner churches even in this city that we invest a lot of money into to help them. And so that's kind of always the question is, well, you know, we have our own needs. They have their needs. How about we take care of us and y'all take care of you and everybody? Well, it doesn't always work like that, right? Sometimes people are more blessed than others and they can financially help people that, you know, I think of uh, some of the people we're in partnership with are ministering in places where the people could never support the work that's being done in that area without people from America supporting that work financially and people having to sacrifice. Um, And, you know, like our church, for example, is, you know, what we might say, you know, middle, upper class type, type church. But there are a lot of churches that are not. There are a lot of churches that are ministering to people that that's not the case. And so even when they receive an offering, it's just not that much. And so they need help from other people. And so it's the same thing same thing here. But I, I do think that there's more going on than just that because that really wasn't the case with Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not a poor city at all. I mean, Jerusalem was, was wealthy, actually. And I don't think it's just that. Now, no doubt they had poor people and, and poor saints that's specifically mentioned. But I don't think that's the only thing going on with this, with this offering. Um, and also remember in Jerusalem, all the way back in the beginning of the book of Acts, remember it was, it was them that they, the church started selling all their property. Remember everybody started selling their property and pooling their money together and like supplying each other and meeting needs and those sort of things. And there was a lot of generosity in that church. 
So the idea that you get from sort of subtle things that are mentioned is that Paul seems to have this um, obligation, that he's got this mindset that the Gentiles, which are non-Jews, that they have an obligation to the original people of God, the Jewish people of God, to honor them as ones that sort of brought them the gospel. Like, in other words, if it weren't for them and it weren't for the Jerusalem church sort of as the mother church, the gospel would have never even came to you. And so we have this obligation to return natural things for spiritual things. And again, this is a principle in Scripture. Paul mentions that several times. And he says, if you've received spiritual things, then you ought to sow natural things. And so this is, what he, this is probably the clearest explanation is in Romans 15, 25. I hope this isn't boring you. I know these are a lot of small details. But I think it's important, and it, it actually becomes more important at the end of this. But Romans 15, 25, Paul sort of, he's explaining to the Romans about the offering. He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Okay, so first of all, it is legitimately aid. He calls it that. He says, so, so they were in some form of need of assistance. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So again, the contribution was for the poor and it was some sort of aid. Verse 27, but this is where you get that other part. He says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. That's interesting. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service of them in material blessings. So basically, the Jerusalem church found themselves in some sort of time of need for whatever reason. Could be because there was a lot of persecution there. And this is, this is many years after the original persecution you know, that we read about back in uh, like Acts 2 and 3. So maybe it's because of that. But he, he makes this point. He says, okay, they're in need and everybody was pleased to do it. That's great. And he said, and indeed they should have been pleased because they, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. In other words, Paul's mindset is you receive something that was so far more valuable than material blessing, something so far more valuable than financial blessing, that when they find themselves in a financial need, then you ought to be willing to, to sow into that. Amen? So that's kind of the focus here. Probably a good time to take up an offering right now. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what we're doing. That's not the point. But um, the principle is there, and that's, you know, it, is, it, it ends up being a pretty big theme in the epistles. I mean, again, anything that's mentioned, five or six different epistles, it's important to know <clears throat> what it is and what Paul's mindset is and why he's, why he's doing it. And so that's kind of the idea. So his goal is to travel through all these areas, and then he wants to be back in Jerusalem and deliver this offering by Pentecost. All right, that's by, by the festival of Pentecost. So that's his goal on this missionary journey. All right, so back to verse 2, Acts 20, verse 2. It says, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now, we're not told, remember, Greece was the green section at the bottom, and there's really two churches there 
that were planted on the second missionary journey. It was the church of Athens and the church of Corinth. Now, we never see a letter to the church of Athens in the epistles, whether that be because uh, one wasn't written or because it was lost and, it, and so we just never found it. Or sometimes you'll see these cities that were very close together. Sometimes they would share. Uh, they had such a close relationship. Sometimes they would share letters. But when it says that he went to Greece, we, we don't really know where, where he was at, Corinth or Athens, but probably both. Verse 3, there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria... He decided to return through Macedonia. Okay, let's pull up the map again, the full map. So we're in that green section all the way to the left, which is, uh, which is Achaia, actually. That's the province. But he's in Greece, that area right there at the top. And on the last missionary journey, once he reached that point, he sailed all the way across the Mediterranean Sea back to Jerusalem or Syria all the way on the right. Everybody clear on that? I know, it's, I know some of it's small, but everybody following me with that? Okay. So he was about to do the same thing. He was about to sail from Achaia all the way to the left, Greece, through the Mediterranean back to Syria. But something happened. So read, keep the map up, but reading verse 3 again. There he spent three months, that's in Greece, when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria, but he decided to return through Macedonia. So instead of going all sailing all the way through the Mediterranean, he begins to backtrack. Now he goes back up through Greece, back up through Macedonia, back through Ephesus, and he goes all the way that, that direction. All right, so let's talk about this plot by the Jews. Again, we're not, we're not specific. I mean, we could look at um, all the other plots that have happened in the book of Acts. They've all been pretty similar. You know, they, they stir up a crowd of people. They get either the, the leaders of the synagogue involved, the Jewish leaders against them, or they stir up the Roman government against them. So this has been the plots all along that they've experienced. But somehow... This one was completely thwarted just by changing the direction they were going to go. So, you know, their plan was to go across the Mediterranean, and basically it was, it was solved. The issue was solved just by them not going that direction and then backtracking the way that they came. So when this has been studied and looked at by scholars, and there's lots of other information to it, part of what they think is going on here is actually this offering. And... The, you know, as they were going through these cities, remember, they had trouble with Jewish people in these cities. But remember, there's not like they're just carrying a check he can stuff in his pocket. You know, they've got chests of, of money and things that they're carrying with them that people had observed and seen or word got around or whatever. So a lot of scholars believe that this plot had something to do actually with sabotaging that in some way. Whether it did, whether it didn't, I don't know. But that seems very plausible to me, especially because once they turn around and go back through, it, you know, it's almost like the plot was, had something to do with them going through the Mediterranean. And then when they turned around and went the other way, it was pretty much solved. And we, we don't hear anything else about it. And they didn't have any issues after this. So that's neither here nor there. But that, you know, that could be the case. But we don't, we don't know that for sure. And anytime 
we're dealing in speculation. I like to make sure you know that. That's not in Scripture. It doesn't say that. That's just looking at some of the context and saying that's a possibility. Okay, so about to sail for Syria, they, ret- they decided to return through Macedonia. Verse 4. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Again, let's put up the map. Uh, you could zoom in on that area, Shane. So they're waiting for us at Troas. Troas is the very tip of Asia, the pink section all the way to the right. So the, the top part of the Mediterranean Sea is the Aegean Sea, and all the way to the, the right on the very left tip of Asia is where Troas is. So let me read it again with the map up. It says, um, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So this is where they're at now, at Troas. And verse 7, we have something interesting that, that happens there at Troas. So we'll, we'll, read the, we'll show the scriptures now. But verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, to break bread. Now that, see, all these little things give us clues about the first century church and what their time together looked like. You know, they didn't gather like we like we're doing here tonight, because, uh, or, or they did in the places where they were accepted by the Jews and they had the synagogue, they would have gathered there. But, and this is a whole other sermon we won't get into tonight. But this is the reason. This ends up being the reason why we have church on Sunday, right? Because we. Originally, church, they were having church on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. That's why you still have people today, you know, that have church on Saturday. They make a whole denomination out of it, I think, uh, about having church on Saturday. Well, the, the first century church began having church on Sunday because they were not allowed in the synagogue. <laughs> that was the whole point. They'd been kicked out of the synagogue, so they weren't allowed in the synagogue. And so they, they ended up having church on Sunday, uh, being the first day of the week, in honor of that being the day that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. So they gathered a lot different than we do. I mean, they, it wasn't, we, we're so privileged and blessed to be able to gather with ease, but they didn't always have that. And it was different city to city, you know. But notice on the first day of the week, that would have been a Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread. So Paul doesn't, when he says the Christians gathered, in his mind, it wasn't just to sing and preach. As a matter of fact, this breaking bread was such a big part of it that he doesn't say we gathered to preach. He doesn't say we gathered to study the word. He doesn't say we gathered to worship. He said we gathered to break bread. You know, and I, and I think that's important because it shows how much fellowship there was in these churches and how and how committed they were together. And again, this is a theme throughout scripture. This is not one reference. You see this constantly throughout Scripture, the breaking of bread, gathering together to share a meal. And so we were gathered together to break bread. Now, that could also be a reference to communion, but even communion was way different than we do it today. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with how we do it today. I'm just saying it was different. 
when they had communion, it was the Lord's Supper. There was a table. There was bread. There was wine. It was a whole, you know, feast. And it, it took time. It wasn't just a little quick part of their gathering. Like they would sit around and eat and drink and talk and fellowship and discuss the word and pray for one another. And, and that, you know, is a big part of why we do life groups. You know, when you just gather like we're doing now, it's wonderful, right? We worship, we get the word, but there is a relational element that's lacking in that. There's a, there's a relationship element where you could come to church for a long time and not really even know the people that you go to church with if you're not careful. But that you can see, and you'll see as we read the rest of this story what happens in Troas, you'll see um, there's a genuine relationship here. There's an intimacy here in the, in the group. And that's part of why we do life groups, because we want our church to experience that and come together to break bread, just like the Bible talks about. So on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I don't ever want to hear any jokes about me being long-winded, all right? I've never preached till midnight. That's, I think we're going on like three or four hours here at this point from what this is telling us. So he, he was intended to part the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. This is why you got to love the Bible. The Bible's very honest, because watch what happens. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, this is a scene right here. All right, Paul's preaching, and Eutychus leaning in the window, and Paul's going on and on and on. Eutychus starts nodding off, and next thing, poor boy, <laughs> slips out the window. I guess it's not funny, but <laughs> he does get raised from the dead, We're gonna, so he makes it. Slips out the window, clocks his head on the sidewalk, and uh, you talk about interrupting a service. I mean, it was just... You can't recover from that one, right? You just got to dismiss at that point. There's nothing you can do. So uh, he was overcome by sleep. He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, well, there it is again. So now we're, I think we're at breakfast at this point. So we had dinner. We preached till midnight. Then we had this whole uproar, and we keep, keep talking, and now we're breaking bread again. Actually, it says it till daybreak, verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. So, I mean, at first, when you read that he preached till midnight, you think, okay, wow, that was, I don't know if I could sit in church that long. Well, for one thing, it wasn't church like this. Right? It, was a ga- it was more of just a, f- a gathering, a large gathering at someone's house. There's food, there's preaching, there's prayer, there's people dying, you know, coming back to life. This is exciting. It's not like normal church. So uh, then he stays all the way, it says, literally until daybreak. So they, had, they were together so long that they had two meals all the way into the morning. Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted, the Bible says. So, um, I just think it's interesting that that story's in the Bible. That, that seems one that could have been left out almost, right? If you're Luke, 
and uh, you're writing about that. It just seems something funny about Paul preaching so long that somebody falls asleep, falls out the window. <laughs> you know, it's just a funny story, but it's, it's those details that get included in Scripture that, you know, just confirm the validity of Scripture. It's not like they were trying to create this narrative of perfection. It's just like, this happened, you know, and uh, Paul was a little long-winded. This happened, and, you know, they're writing about it, and it's there for us. And I think it can be encouraging because, you know, we all make mistakes and do dumb things, and I could tell you some stories about some dumb things I've done, said, you know, dumb things I've seen done, heard other people say, uh, either while preaching or in ministry, lots of stuff happens. Uh, I knew of one youth pastor that thought it would be a good idea to have uh, the youth have a hot tub party in the baptismal. See, just not a good idea. You know, just, I, there's lots of things can go wrong with that. And in the baptismal of all places. So lots of things happen in ministry sometimes, just wild things, okay? And we, I could probably tell you stories all night. But I'm glad that the Holy Spirit, because remember, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, every word. I'm glad the Holy Spirit saw fit to include this, this story. All right, let's move on from there. Verse 13, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos. Now, when it says we set sail, remember, Luke is writing Acts. And so at this point, actually, Paul and Luke separate for a moment. So notice, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos. That's Luke intending to take Paul aboard there for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Let's pull the map up, the zoomed in map again. And we can just leave it up for a minute because we're going to mention a bunch of cities here. I'm, I'm hoping y'all can read that. Yeah, that's pretty big. Okay. Um, so from Troas... Uh, Luke and the rest of the crew set sail down the coast. So now they're, they're, originally they were traveling by land, but now they have a ship because remember they were going to go across the Mediterranean. So I don't know how, what the arrangement was of how they got this ship, but apparently they were, they were locked in on it now. They had this ship and they had to keep it the rest of the way. So from Philippi on, they're, they're literally sailing down the coast, okay? So... Uh, Luke and the rest of the group, they set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, so that did happen, and again, we're not told why. We don't know why he wanted to travel by land and then by sea. We don't know. That just wasn't included. Verse 14, and when, we met, and when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. So he's just sailing down the coast, each of these spots. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to, to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. All right? So... He decides to skip Ephesus because, you know, the last time he was there, he was there for three years. <laughs> so he said, I'm going to just skip Ephesus and head back to Jerusalem. But then I guess, you know, he had such a connection with Ephesus that he, he still wanted to meet with the leaders from Ephesus. So verse 17, 
Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So instead of going into Ephesus, he asked the elders of the church to come down and meet me at Miletus because he wanted to see him, he wanted to pray for him, he wanted to spend time with him, but he didn't want to get so involved that he couldn't leave again. Verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Well, actually, before, before we get into this, this, uh, this little passage where Paul explains himself to the Ephesians, uh, to the Ephesian elders, it's one of the, it's just a beautiful passage of like him just pouring his heart out of his love for them, love for the church, you know, how he sees himself fulfilling the call of God. So pay very close attention to the things that he says. There's, there's just so much stuff in here that we can learn. And it's kind of a long passage, but I'm going to mostly just read through it without, I think, too much commentary. All right, so verse 18, he says, And when uh, they came to me, said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. So Paul knew this was the end for him. I mean, think about it. He hasn't been arrested yet. I mean, up, up to this point, he's been, he's been in prison other places. But I mean, he's not, he hasn't reached that final imprisonment that he's going to go into. But just somehow he knew this is it. I'm not going to do another missionary journey, and I'm not going to see these leaders from Ephesus again. So he said, I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. You will not see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus, 
how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So, from Miletus, he sails across the Mediterranean from there to back to uh, Jerusalem. And this pretty much ends his third missionary journey, even though next week um, we'll, we'll get that final sailing portion headed back. But really, as far as ministry goes, this was the last uh, part of his missionary journey, of the third, of the third missionary journey. But this, this little section here where he just pours out his heart has always been such a great encouragement to me as a pastor because, you know, Paul is admonishing these leaders and, as, and pastors. He's telling them, you know, how they should care for the church of God and just how he views ministry. One of the things that has always stood out to me is just how committed he was, how loyal he was. And he makes this statement. He says, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. In other words, it's not necessarily that I'm going there because I want to go there, but there's the Holy Spirit in me is compelling me to, to do something. And if you ever truly devote your life to God, if you ever truly you know, surrender your life to God, there's going to be moments in your life where you're, you're doing things not because you want to do them, not because you feel like doing them, uh, not because they're even beneficial for you, actually it might be detrimental to you, but you're doing them because you feel constrained by the Spirit of God. You feel compelled by the Spirit that I need to do this. You know, and I, and I think about when we had young kids, some of you have young kids at home now, but I remember when uh, you know, my kids were like 16 months apart, so you had two in diapers, two you know, uh, up through the night and all that. And sometimes there's not really much in you that feels like getting up in the middle of the night to take care again. But there's something in you that compels you, right? It's that parental duty and that, and that commitment as, as their parent. And you know it's a season that you're going to get through. And that's kind of how I see this when he says, I was constrained by the Spirit. Like I'm just, I'm compelled that I have to do this. Even though, and look, look what he says, even though it's to my own hurt because he says... Uh, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit continues to tell me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, that, that's not really what you want to hear in your prayer time, right? You're praying to the Lord, and he's like, look, I just want you to know, every single city from here on out, you're going to have beatings, imprisonments, and affliction. And by the way, I want you to keep a good attitude and be joyful and happy. Yeah, and that's what he was doing. But he said, I don't know what awaits me. But you say, well, how could a person do that? Well, it's a mentality. Look at the mentality. He said, I, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me, but I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. And... Therein lies the problem with the vast majority of, of Christianity, the vast majority of Christians. They could not say, I do not count my life as any value or precious. Matter of fact, my time is precious. My you know, money is precious. 
my free time is precious. Yeah, everything that I have is precious to me. It's very dear to me. Yeah, I get it. But Paul had already crucified that. Paul had already given that up on the altar. And he said, I don't count my life as precious or valuable. Now, he, he's not saying I'm not valuable. He knows his value to the kingdom. Don't, don't think that. He knows his value to the kingdom of God and to these churches. What he's saying is it's not valuable to me to try to hold on to. I've already surrendered it, and I've already given it up. And let me just say this, okay? Don't read this and think, well, I, I could never do that. That's just so far, so I'm not even going to try. No, that's not the right answer either. Because I don't think, I think this is like the standard, and it's, and it's kind of the, you know, the, that pinnacle. But I'll say this, however yielded you are as a believer is how effective you're going to be for God. You may not be right where Paul is here. You may not just be able to say it like he said it because he was a very special man and had a very special call on his life. But I'll tell you this, whatever you can yield, however much you yield to God and surrender to God, he will use that for his kingdom and it will be effective. And I've just pastoring people for a long time. I mean, I've seen people that it's like a scale. You know, and anywhere they are along that scale, God will use them. And what I have found out in my walk with the Lord is that oftentimes God's trying to move that scale just a little bit. You know, okay, you've been here for a while. Now we're going to, we're going to increase it just a little bit until, you know, whether you reach this point or not, would you keep moving towards it? But this mindset, he says, I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. So another way of saying it is, he said, the only thing of any value to me is that I run my race and I finish my course. That's it. I think Paul had a tremendous mindset and view of eternity. I think he knew what was waiting. Remember, there are places in Scripture where he actually talks about having visions of heaven. So he, you know, on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus firsthand. So this life is just not that valuable to him. I mean, he, he's seen the other world. He's seen the other side. And he's saying, the only thing of any value here is for me to work for God and finish my course, and then I'm going home to be with God. In other words, that's where my retirement is. I'm going to, uh, at that point, I'll, I'll retire in heaven, you know. But until then, I'm going to fight and with everything that's in me all the way to the end, and I'm going to give everything up for God. Now, again, I know that some people, you may not, that might not be where you're at. You're like, well, I don't want to be that sold out. Well, I'll just tell you this. I think God will try to use us wherever we're at. You know, I don't think, I haven't seen actually many Christians at this point that Paul is at. But I still think it should be an encouragement to us. And I still think it should be something that drives us and something that inspires us to lay down more of our lives and surrender more of our life for the Lord. So, I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. And of course... He does that, and he does that well. But he's still got a long few years in front of him. He's not, he's not done yet. Okay. Let's see. I'm going to touch on one more point here, and then, and then we're going to be done, done tonight. Notice in, let's see what verse that is. Okay. 
uh, verse 28. He's talking to the elders and the pastors, the leaders of the Ephesian church. And he's, he's trying to get them to understand um, that when we kind of talked about this with Solomon on Sunday, he wants them to see that the success of this church is tied up in your success. In other words, if, if you are faithful and, and you do right and you obey and you are who you need to be and you stay the course, then the flock of God will stay the course. And I know he's talking to elders and leaders, but this applies to any Christian that has anyone in their life that's looking up to them. Any, anybody in their life that um, is looking to you as an example of Christianity or an example of Christ, this is true for you, okay? And this is what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, if you read enough of Paul's writings, you'll see, you'll see similarities between stuff he writes in different places. And so this, this same idea can be found in other places in the epistles. And sometimes he expounds on it more there than he does here. But here and he, he told Timothy these things, and, and so we see it in other places. But what he's really saying is, he says, pay attention to yourself and to the flock. Okay? You can't just pay attention to the flock. You can't just pay attention to yourself. If you, if you neglect yourself, though, the flock is going to end up suffering. So this is true for any believer. If you've been called to lead anybody, okay, just, just your children, you could start there. If you don't pay attention to yourself and your health, your spiritual health, your spiritual disciplines, your walk with the Lord, your church attendance, your prayer life, your Bible reading, if you let those things slip, the people you're called to lead are going to suffer. That, that's the connection. And that's what he's saying when he says this. When he says, pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock. In other words, you're, you're not only responsible for you, but you're responsible for these people that you're leading. And so many times people that get in leadership or they're given a little bit of leadership, they don't keep this in mind. And they start getting careless with their decisions, careless with their spiritual disciplines, careless with their uh, morality, careful, careless with their life choices and things that they're doing, not realizing that you're called to lead. Look, I'm, I'm going to be totally honest with you. As a, as a pastor, you know, uh, and I've been in ministry now, let's see, going on 25 years, uh, going on 25 years next year. And because I started when I was a teenager, I was just, that's, it's not like I'm super old or anything like that. But, but, you know, through all of those times, there are times where you, you know, no one, no one's perfect. So you get, you know, you know, you start making decisions or going a certain direction. And the people that I'm leading have always been an inspiration to me. You know, when, when you start thinking about certain things or making certain decisions or whatever, it is very, very helpful to go, yeah, but what about these people that are looking to me to do right and stay right and be strong and make good decisions? That's a huge inspiration to me. Again, I, I say, even if you just have children, that should be the case. Because I think about my own kids and I go, hey, I'm leading them. They're looking to me as their dad. I've got to be strong and I have to make good decisions. And I've got to do it right because that's, I'm not just... It's not just about me anymore. Now I have people following me that I'm leading. 
and that is the, the connection that sometimes people uh, don't want. You know, like if you've ever seen uh, celebrities or people in that place and someone's like, well, you know, you're a role model. I'm like, well, I don't want to be a role model. Well, too bad. <laughs> you are. You know, that's, that's how it works. And same thing, if you're going to lead people, you know, then there's a connection between you and them and you have to pay attention to yourself. And it would be good for all of us you know, to take inventory on that and go, am I being an example to the people? Am I, am I pushing them closer to God or is there anything that I'm doing that might be actually pushing them away from God? And this has been a problem in Christianity for a long time because enough Christians haven't thought about that and there were people watching them and they said, well, if that's what a Christian is, then I don't even want to be a Christian. Well, if we'd been paying attention to ourselves and to the people we were called to lead, that wouldn't have been an issue. Amen.